This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. And joining us on the phone is Jonathan Carl, chief White House correspondent for ABC News, author of the brand new book, Front Row at the Trump Show, and president of the White House Correspondents Association. Jonathan, I want to begin on your role as president of the association. This is quite not what you signed up for, is it? I mean, this is really an extraordinary set of circumstances, Steve. I mean, we... Uh, you know, the, the, the White House Correspondents Association does kind of the grunt work of making sure that the, uh, you know, first of all, fighting for access to all the uh, the events that the president does, both on White House grounds and on, on trips and foreign trips, uh, but also trying to figure out who's going to be in the pool on any given day and, and, and all of that. Well, suddenly we found ourselves about a month ago in a situation of, facing the dual questions, how can we cover the White House and ensure our, the health and safety of the White House press, um, and how can we ensure our ability to continue to cover the story in the midst of a pandemic uh, that has basically shut everything else down? And we knew that if there was a situation in, in a crowded briefing room where uh, reporters a reporter or multiple reporters uh, uh, tested positive for coronavirus, it could shut the whole operation down. So what we've done over the course of the last three or four weeks is to radically limit the number of reporters that are at the White House at any given time. And Steve, you know, I mean, you, you, you ran the White House Correspondents Association. You know, that is against every, like the core of, of, our, of our function. We fight for more access for more journalists. And now we found ourselves saying, we, we, we need to cut this down so that we at least have some presence of an independent free press covering what is probably the most important story of our lifetimes. So, you know, we're done. you look at that briefing on any given day, and you've got 14 journalists uh, sitting in the 49 seats that are usually all packed if there's a president anywhere around. And unlike a normal circumstance, you don't see reporters and photographers crowding in the aisles and in the back we we are we are really spaced out and probably you know i mean if anything need to be more spaced out it is small it is a cramped room but so far is it working so far you know knock on wood here uh it's working uh, we uh we've set up a very complicated uh, uh series of rotations for the uh for the seats to ensure that as many news organizations as possible can get in there and it you know the major news organizations with uh, with a broad reach um, and, and an audience desperate for news uh, are, are able to uh, to get in there as much as possible and we've had a few scares uh, Steve we've had a couple of incidents where uh, journalists uh, members of our of the of the WHCA uh, have gotten sick and were thought could have coronavirus were immediately you know, self-isolated and given, you know, tests. And one, one didn't, in the first case, it actually took eight days to get test results back. So, you Which know. was incredible. I mean, come on. This is somebody who's going in the White House and, like, has very close proximity to the president. And even under those circumstances, couldn't get a test for eight days. Now, after this, the second individual, which was just last week, uh, we were able to get a much quicker test. And um, for the day when we weren't sure whether or not that person had coronavirus, they actually 
the White House uh, physician's office actually administered tests for everybody in the room, uh, those, those instant Abbott lab tests. So, uh, but, you know, this is, this is a strange time. I mean, it's to, to go in, again, the most important story most of us have ever covered, and yet when you walk in to the gate, the northwest gate of, of the White House, you go on White House grounds, and then you walk in that door to the briefing room, every single journalist that does it is thinking, this may be the most dangerous place I'm going to be almost certainly all day. Because uh, it's cramped, there are more people. We've tried to socially isolate. We've limited the number of people, but it's still a small and cramped place. Jonathan Carlin, you talk about access, and certainly we always want more access. But I have to ask you about these daily briefings. I know you stream them on your website at ABC News. We carry them live on the C-SPAN networks. Some of these briefings run two, two and a half hours with the president and the key figures in the coronavirus task force. My question is. Is that the best use of their time? Well, uh, Steve, I've sat there, you know, I did the, did the one the other day clocked in at two hours and 24 minutes. This was the briefing where he showed the video. And I looked over and I see Anthony Fauci. He's sitting, for, the mo- for most of it, he was sitting to, to the side, you know, in, those, in the staff seats. And he was there for all two hours and 24 minutes. As a matter of fact, at one point, when it was still going on, because I, I, I was in the front row for that one, I leaned over to him and I, and I said, you've got C-SPAN, and what, what are you doing C-SPAN? Because remember, he had the C-SPAN Q&A. And he was late for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was late because the thing didn't get over until after, it was like 8 o'clock, and we were supposed to have him at 8. So I, um, you know, I, I, I look over and I see him there, and I'm just thinking... It's very important for it's very important for me as a journalist to question Anthony Fauci because he's the infectious disease expert. He's the federal government's top expert on this stuff. But the, the thought that goes through my head is, doesn't he have something more important to do? I mean, yeah, it's incredibly important to educate the public, and he could do that by like talking to us for fifteen minutes and taking our questions. But let the guy free, <laughs> you know, let him go and get back to work. Uh, this is, you know, it, it, it feels like, I mean, this is my job to cover these things. And sometimes I'm looking at my watch saying, my Lord, uh, how much longer are we going to go? But to see the experts there, it's, it's a really good point. And he actually acknowledged this in an interview the other day with the Associated Press, um, that he wished he could kind of do what he does and, and, and move on more quickly. And the last few days he hasn't been there and. And I think that's, you know, on balance, you know, on balance, probably a good thing. Um, Although, you know, he does take the opportunity to go and do, you know, engage with the media, engage with reporters, engage with news organizations of all stripes. Um, And I think that's really important because, you know, he is the person that people want to hear from. But he's also got a job to do. We have that moment with the president and that video that he showed. We carried it live. Let's listen and get your reaction. We pieced that together. I would say it took less than two hours. It was done in house, Steve. So this was produced by government employees, by, by people here at the White House, this campaign style. I, I wouldn't use the here. word produced. All they did was took some clips and they just ran them for you. And the reason they did is to keep you honest. Now, I don't think that's going to work. It's not going to have any impact. But just think of it. You heard the clips. You heard what I said. They said, I acted late on closing down the country. 
some people wish we never closed it down. Now, if we didn't, we would have lost hundreds of thousands of people. You know, interestingly, so I'm, I'm against it. We did the right thing. Everything we did was right. And so, Jonathan Carl, one of the more remarkable moments in a briefing just this past week, but that final point by the president, everything we did was right. Can you comment? Everything we did was right. When he said that, I had this feeling of, oh, my God. So I asked him, right right where that clip ends, I asked him, everything you did was right. You don't think there were any mistakes made along the way? And his answer was, well, the governors, uh, you know, the governors should have gotten more ventilators in there earlier. The governors, uh, it really astounding. It was as astounding as the comment he made about three or four weeks ago where he said, I don't, uh, I don't take responsibility at all. Um, it really, you know, I mean, look, I think that some people have been too quick to blame President Trump for everything and – uh, in fact, there were there was criticism when when they shut uh, flights down from from China. There there was criticism uh, coming from Capitol Hill, and uh, you know Joe Biden had his tweet the very next day, which talked about uh, the president being you know xenophobic. He didn't directly mention the flights being cut down, but it, you know I mean what what else would he have really been talking about? So 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 that part is true, but I mean. You know, it's like it is. It is the opposite of Harry Truman's "The Buck Stop Here." It's, it's we've done everything right, and if anything has been wrong, it's not my fault. If this were a normal year, we would be talking about the upcoming White House Correspondents' Dinner at the end of this month. It's been moved to the end of August. Tell us the thinking behind that. Well, we it was the toughest decision that. I, I mean, there was no choice, but it was still the toughest decision that I've made as the WHCA president was to pull the plug on our plans for the April 25th dinner. Um, once it became clear that, you know, this 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 was going to be here for all this pandemic was was not going away and anytime soon. So we, we had Steve, I mean, I talked to you about it. You you know, you you know what it's like to plan one of these dinners and we had we had brought in a uh, producer. We we had we had gotten Keenan Thompson of Saturday Night Live, uh, Hassan Minhaj of uh, of the Netflix series Patriot Act. We're gonna have two, you know, a host and a featured entertainer. Um, we had uh, ready to introduce a new award called the Catherine Graham Award for courage and responsi- and, and and accountability. I mean, we had I had such grand plans for this dinner. And then, you know, it was, became clear we were not going to be able to have it. So after a lot of work, after postponing, we have found a date that will work. I hope the coronavirus will cooperate with us, but who knows? Uh, August 29th, and it's, the thinking is, you know, that, um, that hopefully this will be largely behind us, although, you know, it, it, it isn't going to be totally behind us until there's a vaccine that everybody can take. But... You know, hopefully it's far enough away that we'll be able to do this. I did have kind of an offline conversation with Anthony Fauci several weeks ago uh, to talk to him about when he would recommend we would try to reschedule. And he made it clear to me, don't do it any, you know, don't try to do it earlier than August. Um, So, you know, that's where it is. I'm hopeful that we're going to be able to do this. It may look a little bit different. 
Um, but uh, I think that the dinner is an important night to, to celebrate great journalism and the First Amendment, and I am going to do everything in my power to do uh, to, to make sure that we can do it this year. And, of course, we will cover it live, as we always have. The book is called Front Row at the Trump Show, and I love the beginning of the book, the New York Post headline, Inside Michael's Honeymoon Hideaway, and your first introduction as a young reporter to Donald Trump. Tell the story. This is an amazing story, and there are... I, I, I thank you for... Thank you for taking an interest in this book, and I, I hope people will, will, will read it for for these stories and to try to get an understanding of who Donald Trump is and what makes him tick. And I, I think that this book will be will speak to those who who think that Donald Trump, who love Donald Trump, and those who think that he is a threat to our republic. Because I don't I don't take a position here. I I tell it as it is and and as I have experienced him. The very first time I met him was 1994. I was a young reporter for the New York Post. I had only been on the job for about six months, and I was aspiring to be a political reporter. And at this point, I'd worked my way up to being the number three guy for the New York Post at City Hall. New mayor there, by the way. I think his name was Rudy Giuliani. Um, And... I was, uh, you know, down there trying to get in the paper every day, and there was this story that just took New York by storm. Michael Jackson, the king of pop, it, it was learned, it had been revealed, had been secretly married to Lisa Marie Presley, the, uh, the the daughter of Elvis. I mean, can you imagine? This was like such a this story totally consumed uh, pop culture world. Uh, paparazzi world and the news world because Michael Jackson was at the absolute peak of his popularity. And it was revealed that they were staying at Trump Tower. So I, you know, again, I was an aspiring political reporter. I, this was not really my kind of story at all, but I wanted to get in the paper. You know how it is. I mean, I want to get in the paper. You want that byline. Yeah. So I took out a phone book. You remember phone books, Steve? Um, <laughs> you know, and, and I, I looked up the number for the Trump organization, and I just cold called, and I said, I'd like to talk to Donald Trump. And, you know, of course, they, uh, I, I, I didn't get through to Donald Trump right away. They put me through to his secretary, a woman by the name of Norma Federer, who was, was, was Trump's gatekeeper for everything at the time. And she said, well, what do you want to talk to him about? I was like, well, I've got a story idea. I want to ask him why the most famous newlyweds in the entire world would want to have their honeymoon at Trump Tower. <laughs> so I had never met Trump, but I had an idea of the kind of thing that would, might make him tick, you know, get him, get him fire up his imagination. He called me back, I swear to you, in less than an hour and invited me. I thought I'd get a quote and do a little funny sidebar story or something. He called me and said, come up now. I'll show you everything. So I grabbed the photographer. His name was Francis Becker uh, of the New York Post. You know, um, found a tie because I didn't wear tie in the newsroom in those days, and just hightailed it up to Trump Tower. And he ended up showing me everything. I, I, I he showed me where, where Lisa Marie and and, um, and Michael were staying. I met Michael's bodyguards. 
He showed me the uh, the underground tunnels that they used to get out of Trump Tower without being spotted by the media paparazzi, which had consumed the entire block around around Trump Tower. I mean, there were police cordon. It was, and, and he, he he showed me all this stuff, and he told me where all the various famous people about apartments in Trump Tower. We, you can imagine, the Post ate this up. This was my. This was like a breakthrough. I, you know, the front page story, or as they call it. You know the wood, huge headline. You know, um, and and then we had like four or five stories inside, including a, a a drawing of Trump Tower with arrows pointing to where the you know Sophia Loren lives here, um, Andrew Lloyd Webber lives here, the British royal family, Steven Spielberg. He told me, I mean, it was unbelievable. And sometime during the middle of this tour, he asked me if I wanted to get a picture taken with him. Which I, I didn't expect because I was there as a journalist, you know. Um, I mean, it might not have been like the most weighty story in the world, but it still seemed a little bit odd. So, but I guess, yeah, sure. So uh, we took a picture. Um, I had that picture while I was still living in New York. I put it in a little frame. But when I moved to Washington more than 20 years ago, I put it in a box, and it stayed in that box of old photographs until Trump became president. And I was like, I've got to find that picture. I know it's around somewhere. And I found the picture. I put it in the book. It's it's wild. A very 1990s tie, I might add. Yes, I am wearing a tie that I guarantee you I bought for $3 from a street vendor <laughs> in New York. Um, my my, you know, I was a print guy at a tabloid working on South Street in New York. And my, my suit is as wrinkled as it could possibly be. Uh, I've got ridiculous hair. Um, but Trump is wearing the same dark suit he always wears, the same red tie that goes too long. The, uh, the, the, the hair is almost exactly the same. He's, a, you know, he's probably like 20, 30 pounds lighter than he is now, but everything else, exactly the same guy, the same expression you see when he does photos now with people behind the Resolute desk. And the idea, I mean, Steve, just think about this. I mean, the idea that me doing this ridiculous tour as an unknown reporter for the New York Post about Michael Jackson and him leading me around and doing all this, the idea that he would end up at the White House and so would I, and I would be the president of the White House Correspondents Association and he would be president of the United States. I mean, it's a mind-blowing thing. So the story, that's where the story begins. But I have had interactions with the president that I have never told before until this book, because I'm, you know, I'm the crush of telling daily news, you know, what's happening. I wanted to take a step back and just tell the story of this journey. And that's what I've done with the book. So I, you know, I hope I, I, and my aspirations for, for this book, I, I, again, there are books about how great Donald Trump is. And there are books about how awful Donald Trump is. This is neither. I want this book to, to stand if, if somebody came to this country 20 or 50 years from now and they asked you, you know, old man Steve Scully, what was it like? What was that Trump thing all about? I'm hoping that you'll have a copy of my book somewhere in your library and you'll say, read this. This explains what the heck was going on and what it was like. Among the stories that you tell before the election, October 24th, 2016, and the hierarchy of the Trump campaign, including Eric Trump and Kellyanne Conway coming to ABC News in New York, and you have a new tracking poll that basically says Hillary Clinton is going to win this thing easily, and Eric Trump says, you're crazy. Yeah. 
That was unbelievable. Oh man, this is the, this was the beginning of our tracking poll. So it's uh, uh, you know it's just a couple weeks before before the election, and um, we we have them down. You know, freaking like what was it? I I don't have it in front of me, but it, it was a ridiculous double digit lead for Hillary Clinton. I mean, it fifty was to thirty eight percent. I mean, and and uh, Eric Trump learns about it just as he's coming in to get give the briefing. You know, we they're, they're going around talking to the various networks about what what they're going to do for the final stretch. And he sees our poll, and he's like, "Are you out of your mind? You think you know?" And he's like, and, and he tells me, he tells all of us um, that uh, that he'd just come back from Pennsylvania, and he said everywhere he saw yard signs, Trump, Trump. Trump 2016, and he said he didn't see anything for Hillary Clinton. He said, if you think that we're down, you know, by 12 points or whatever, you know, you're out of your mind. And I'm thinking to myself, first of all, don't blame me for the tracking poll. That's not my job. But secondly, yard signs, I mean, yard signs are not an indicator. But, you know, of course, he was right. Uh, They ended up winning Pennsylvania, um, which nobody would have predicted um i don't even know if they would have predicted that and um but the but the thing is uh so it was it was a it was a wild meeting as you can imagine uh, but the thing is our tracking poll went up and down and you know and and that was the the, the very beginning of it and there was um a, just right before the election our tracking poll actually had a day that had trump up one and it ended with trump down three and if you remember, and if you don't remember this, the Democrats will remind you, uh, he lost the popular vote, which is what a tracking poll measures, mm-hmm. uh, by a little over 2%. So um, the, the problem, and I write about this, is that so many of us were measuring the wrong thing. And we've been doing it for election after election, but usually it ends up coming together. We were measuring the overall popular sentiment. That's what the, that's what the Gallup poll measures that's what our polls measure that's what you know nationally and presidents don't get elected that way you get elected state by state electoral college and um you know that and there was very little quality polling in those battleground states um and that's you know that was a fundamental problem with political journalism in 2016 Another moment, and you spell it out and really chronicle exactly what happened. We were among the pool cameras two days after the election. You're in the Oval Office with the president, Barack Obama, the president-elect, Donald Trump. And you write in your book, I was immediately struck by Trump's body language. I was seeing a side of him I had never seen before. Went back to look at the video, and it was incredible how different Donald Trump was in the Oval Office with President Barack Obama two days after his victory. Amazing. So I had been in New York. That's where our election night headquarters is. And I hadn't slept. And I, you know, I saw we were going to be pull. ABC would be pull, which meant that I would be, you know, along with your C-SPAN camera, one of the few people in the Oval Office for this historic meeting of two people that had never actually met, even though they had been these, you know, this, this kind of titanic, you know, figures in this battle. They had never met each other. And I, so I race down to New York, uh, go into this meeting, 
what the first thing I, I, I mentioned is that we get called in uh, for what we call the pool spray, which is at the end of the meeting, they make some comments, take pictures, and you get the hell out of there. Uh, we waited outside the door to the Oval Office for over 40 minutes. The meeting itself had taken over an hour, and I've never seen that happen before. And then when I go in, and one of the great things that – so I've mined – to write this book, I – I looked back at all my notes. I looked back at all the pictures I had taken on my on my phone, and I looked back and I, and I went back and talked to all the people that were at these various moments to get their recollections. And in some cases, they've turned over notes to me as well. So, I took a lot of pictures with my own phone in there in the Oval Office in this historic moment, and. It was looking back at those. I remember it struck me at the time. I mentioned it at the time, but but so much has happened since. Is that this was the first time I had ever seen Donald Trump in a situation where he wasn't the center of attention. He shared the spotlight. It wasn't his meeting. It was the president's meeting. And the president at that point was still Barack Obama. So it was Obama that called the press in. It was Obama that called everybody to order. It was Obama that made the first comments. It was Obama that turned it over to him uh, to speak. And as, as this is all playing out, I'm seeing Donald Trump kind of hunched over, um, hands, you know, between his knees, uh, an expression on his face that I had never seen before, and frankly, I've never seen since, which the way I describe it, I, I think he looked humbled. I think he looked a, a little struck, maybe even a little freaked out about what he was about to inherit. I don't think he ever, I don't know if he ever really thought he was going to win. I don't think he did. And here he's in the Oval Office for the first time with President Obama learning about all the, you know, the immense challenges that would be his immediately after taking that oath of office. And I, it, it, it blew me away. It really blew me away. And um, I, I, I spent, I do a whole chapter on that, on the, on the events surrounding that day. And I talked to all the key Obama people, all the key Trump people um, about what that meeting was like. But ultimately, it was a one-on-one meeting. And Everything we know about it, we learn either from the two men themselves or from what they told people. And I, what I find the most reliable is what they told people in real time. Because um, now, you know, the, the kind of gloss of everything that's happened since col- colors it. But, uh, but a really, in a really extraordinary day at the White House, unlike any other. And Jonathan Carl, let me conclude with a story that is in your epilogue and some background. Back in April of 2011, Josh Ernest, who was the White House press secretary, called me on the day of the dinner to give me a transcript of President Obama's script for the dinner that night and wanted to make sure, because we were pool for the dinner, that we had a clear shot of Donald Trump. I mention that because the video that people see is from us, and he, Donald Trump, is asking you about that dinner as you prepared for your own dinner. Oh, man, isn't that amazing? So, yeah, this this was a meeting, again, a meeting I've never described before this book. Um... It was in uh, first week of September of last year, so it's not that long ago. And I had done a little report on Labor Day. Uh, so this was t- the Tuesday after Labor Day. Um, uh, it had mentioned that he that, that, that he had 
uh, incorrectly said that Hurricane Dorian, which was at that point approaching Florida, had not made landfall, um, uh, that, that Alabama could be in, in, in the path. And the National Weather Service, I noted in my story, quickly put out a, a tweet saying, actually, Alabama's not in the path. So I mentioned it. It wasn't a big deal. It was like way down in my story. And he was infuriated about it. And as you remember, that turned it like dominated the following week of coverage. But at this point, it hadn't gotten much attention, but it had been mentioned in my story on, that ran, you know, at 6.30 on Labor Day, which I was surprised he even saw. So he called me in, on Tuesday. And before he gets to that subject, he wants to know how the planning for the dinner come, is coming. Um, I think he was wanted to come to the dinner, actually. Um, and he just goes into this riff about the about the 2011 dinner where uh, Obama had so relentlessly ridiculed him in his speech. And um, he and he wanted me to know that he was not upset by what Obama said uh, at that dinner and that. He, the only reason why he wasn't laughing is because he knew the cameras were on him and he didn't want to, like, put his guests in a bad situation. I don't really know what he meant by that. But that's why he said in your C-SPAN cutaways he's not smiling or laughing. It wasn't that he was upset. And that people say that he ran for president because of that dinner, and that's just completely ridiculous. And that's not the case. He had no problem with what Obama, you know, said. He, he was fine. So, anyway, I, you know, you have to understand – I'm in there on a Tuesday in September. It's not long after the shootings in El Paso and Dayton. Uh, the uh, Overnight, there had been uh, stories that North Korea had tested mid-range missiles, um, and there was a hurricane bearing in on, on Florida. So, in other words, a very busy and consequential day in the White House. And he, and he spends you know a good 10 minutes talking about your White House correspondence dinner, you know, from nearly a decade ago. It's really just, amazing. Just one of the many stories. The book is called Front Row at the Trump Show. Jonathan Carl, he is chief White House correspondent for ABC News. He is also the president of the White House Correspondents Association. We thank you for being with us. Great. And, and by that, I should add one thing. It has, the, the good news is that the, the book has done very well. New York Times bestseller list uh, uh, now, now in the second week uh, of that. The bad news is because of all the challenges facing Amazon and its supply chains, it has at least temporarily sold out on Amazon. But you can get it online, Barnes and Noble, and you know, if you, you know, local bookstores uh, that, that are doing uh, pickup, curbside pickup, also have it. But uh, but right now, uh, we're back ordered on on Amazon, which I guess is good news. <laughs> it's it's like good, but it's then it's not good because it that is like the. The dominant realtor for I mean I mean I mean uh, you know the dominant retailer in in the in the United States and especially for books uh, now with bookstores most of them closed um, and it's it's a it's a little frustrating because they've you know the, the the priority as it must be and should be is essential goods and uh, but it, it you know I'm hoping they'll have supply soon but anyway you can still get it at Barnes and Noble Jonathan Carl. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Steve. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app on the web at cspan.org slash podcasts or wherever you download your favorite podcast. And be sure to rate and review us. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Thanks for listening.